Also, I've got the scripture for today is Acts 16, 11 through 15. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samaras. And the next day we went on to Naples. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to those women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Tarathia named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. All right. Thank you, Joseph. How you guys doing? Good, 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 good. Okay. Uh, there's like this we- weird feeling because it's Florida. And so it's like muggy because the windows are open, but the AC is on. So it's also cold and wet. So it's like this muggy, wet, cold right here in this general area. So I hope you guys are all right. So I may get a little sweaty and my hair may get poofy. Who knows? Who knows? Okay, so um, glad you're here. This is our passage today, and here's what we're doing. Um, today's going to be a bit of a, a character study. There's this woman in this passage named Lydia, and people don't understand the role that she played and how some of the, the most fascinating passages, the most beautiful passages of scriptures that we have, likely without her being in this book, these passages likely would not be in um, the New Testament. And so um, every character has a place, every character has a, has a bit of a plan um, and a role that they play. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up sort of the story of this woman today. And uh, I, think it's, I think it's fascinating. So uh, let's pray and then let's jump into this. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I lift every one of them up to you. Um, right now I ask that you would help us to be present and calm and here. Um, I ask that uh, you would speak to us, encourage us, help us to see ourselves in the story, help us to see you in the story and, and the role that we play, maybe the character that we connect with and, uh, and see parallels in our lives and how we should respond to things going on around us. Um, thank you for these ancient letters. Thank you for preserving them for thousands of years so that we could gather and open them up and contemplate the writings contained in them and the meaning behind it all. I pray that you, Jesus, would be present with us. You are the word of God. And I pray that you would illuminate your scriptures, please. In your name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to start right here um, with the journey. It says, from Troas, we put out to sea. It says we now, remember. So Luke... The writer uh, has joined the group. Perhaps he's become a convert. Perhaps he's become a follower of Jesus. We're not really sure. I I have some theories on that. Um, And so do many others. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for uh, Samothrace. And the next day, uh, we went on to Neapolis. And from there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And so we stayed there for several days. So they decided to go to sort of the capital, if you will, of Macedonia, a place called Philippi. I want to show you the journey that they took. Um, they started down here by Troas. They went to the island, took a boat to the island of Samothrace, went up to Philippi, <clears throat> Philippi here. From there, they eventually kind of split and go different directions. Um, and the, 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 very, the journeys go different directions from that point. But um, I want you to see that, like, this is probably six, seven hundred miles. It's like 
walking from Florida to like Virginia. Like these guys are traveling. They're sleeping under the stars. They're eating, uh, rationing their food, buying food in the towns in which they're visiting. Like this is, this is hard going. It's like this, this world in which they are living in. Um, the roads were not safe. They weren't easily um, necessarily uh, managed and maneuvered. There were bandits waiting. All kinds of things could happen on the road. There were um, literally wild animals that could just kill you. So these guys going on this journey, they must have really, really believed in what they were doing and thought of it as vitally important. And so they end up in Philippi, um, and there's some logic to going here. Philippi, not just, it's not just the capital of sort of the area. It's not just the main city there. Um, by the way, here it is today. Here's the ruins of Philippi left over. This would be the Agora, which is the... Um, the place where they would sell. It's like the, the market, right? Where they would sell all the, um, all the goods and exchange everything. Um, and so Philippi was a Roman colony. A, a Roman colony was a specific thing. It was usually a Roman colony. Hold on, let me adjust this again. The, uh, the, a Roman colony was usually inhabited by ex Roman soldiers, these are veterans that have been sent to live, sort of they finished their work, and they've all been sent to live in a specific area, and it's not necessarily like um, Roman cultured city, but at first, and so the people would make sure that on the outskirts of Rome that they really lived like Romans. They would wear the Roman dress, speak the Roman languages, um, do all the, all the cultural Roman things that they did because they're celebrating like the nation that they served, the empire that they served their whole lives, and now they're all retired and they're living there together in this area. And so if you go there, you're going to have a heavy sort of confluence of, of Roman travelers coming through that are coming and going from different areas of the empire. And so it's a very important sort of strategic area for the Christians to plant a church in. Um, but in Philippi, as in a lot of Roman colonies, there was no synagogue. And this is a problem. The reason this is a problem is because, remember, every time these Christians go to a city to plant a church, the first thing they do is they go to the synagogue and they preach the name of Jesus there in the synagogue. And so... In, in lieu of a synagogue, if there's nowhere for the Jews to gather, the Jews who are living in that city usually go down by the water and they gather there. And so there would be a specific area where the Jewish people would go to pray and do their sort of synagogue-esque teachings, if you will, and carry on the tradition of, of the Jewish teachings. And so Paul um, goes and realizes there's no synagogue, and so it says, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city to the river uh, where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the, uh, to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman from the city uh, of, of Theatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. Now, um, so we, we meet this woman here. Who's, Paul goes down by the river, and there's a group of women gathered there who are praying, Jewish women. Um, not full Jewish, not all of them, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, but Lydia is there, and she seems to be the leader of the group, and she's leading these people in prayer, and Paul sort of joins them in prayer, and after the prayer's up, Paul begins to teach um, as, you know, if a Pharisee walks up, Paul would have, would have had probably some of the Pharisee garb, um, and he's well-educated, and so if a Pharisee shows up, they have some, some things that they can teach, and so Paul begins to teach, and they listen to him, um, and it says two things about this woman, Lydia, who was gathered there. It says, for, oh, by the way, I wanted to show you some of the ancient icons of, of Lydia, like this one in particular. Um, I love the ancient sort of uh, Greek Orthodox icons, uh, the ancient Christian icons and stuff like that. I love it because it, it sort of is meant to communicate a lot about these people. So remember, the average person only had 
um, two articles of clothing, an undergarment and sort of an outer garment, and you can see both of those there. But then she's got this other thing, this purple shawl with a huge sort of, uh, what is that called, like a clasp or something that joins it together that is ornate and has a, has a precious stone in it. Um, and so it's communicating something about her. It's communicating, for some reason, she's got the pink uh, scarlet cloth on and she's got some wealth that she has. And she's also got the cross, signifying that like, she's a follower of Jesus and this is her symbol, okay? So, I love this. This is Lydia. Now, um, it says two things about Lydia. It says, first off, that she was a dealer in purple cloth. That explains what she's wearing in the ancient icon here. And second, it says that she's a God-fearer. So I want to start with that one and then I'm going to go to the purple cloth one. So, what is a God-fearer? So, when you read the Bible, characters are coming and going. And most modern readers don't have time to like go to seminary and study like all who these characters are and what do these words mean. We tend to just read them and accept it as we see it. And so there are characters passing through. Sometimes um, you will see people passing through. It'll say, it'll say, it'll mention a character has drawn near to God or has approached God. Um, these words have specific meaning. It's not just that like, as we would say, he drew near to God, like he's coming closer it's a position in society, okay? So let me talk about this. So there's two types of Jewish converts in the first century. What I mean by Jewish convert is somebody who wasn't born Jewish, who was gen- somebody who was Gentile, and, and converted to Judaism, okay? Uh, the first one is called a proselyte. The word is proselytes in the Greek, and it translates to as those who approach, those who come, or those who draw near. These would be full converts to Judaism. Gentiles who um, believe the teachings of the apostles, um, I'm sorry, uh, Judaism, who, uh, Gentiles who believe the teachings of the Pharisees in the temple, um, and they kind of want to join the Jewish people, and so they go the whole way. They keep the moral Jewish laws, they keep the ceremonial laws, they keep the Sabbath, and as well, uh, the men keep the circumcision laws as well. Um, so this, when you read, when you're reading the passage and it says um, you come across a proselyte, or you come across somebody who it says um, has approached God, That's what it's talking about. It's a specific type of Gentile person that has become a full Jewish convert. And there's another type in the Bible that is called a God-fearer. And you will hear this a lot as you read through the New Testament. You will see so-and-so was a fearer of God or a God-fearer. This is also a type of Jewish convert. It's not not a description of somebody. It's, uh, it's, It's sort of a title that they gave to these people who they accepted Jewish moral law but they didn't go all the way to taking part in the ceremonial law and circumcision. Uh, and so they, in other words, they were intrigued by the teaching of the people, but they didn't really feel like they belonged. And they would hang out on the outskirts of the temple and the Jewish teachings in the synagogue, and they would listen, but they weren't allowed to take part in it because they didn't conform fully to the Jewish laws. Um, but they loved the God of, of, of Judaism. They loved the God of Israel. And so they're always on the outskirts. They're there. You will see them all through the text. Lydia was one of them, and some of these other ladies were probably uh, God-fearers as well. Um, The God-fearers were some of the most receptive people to the gospel because of all all the things that kept them from really becoming one of God's people were the ceremonial cleansing laws, the sacrificial laws, the circumcision laws, and they couldn't join God's people because these things kept them out. They couldn't go that far for whatever reason. And so when Christianity enters in, the God-fearers suddenly realize 
oh, these things are no longer keeping me from God. I no longer need to be circumcised or go through the ceremonial law. I no longer need to keep the Sabbath. My faith, my allegiance to Jesus is all that's needed. It's all that's necessary. And so they become followers of Jesus, um, especially all through cities like Thessalonica. They came in droves, okay? Lydia is among the first of these God-fearers to come to Jesus, and they wanted so badly to be a part of a community, but there were specific things, physical things that kept them from joining, mainly the demands of the Pharisee. And as you ponder that, you have to like, if I bring that into today, it makes me sit and ponder all of the things that we put in the way of people who want to become close to God, people who want to draw near, all of the things that we set up and say, you can't enter in because you're like this and you're like this and you're like this and you were like this. When in fact, God is drawing them in and the only thing keeping them out is us and our rules and our laws. And we expect people to change before they come sit at the table and we neglect the fact that that's not historically and biblically how people have changed. People changed by being welcomed at the table. Anyone who is going to ever change, it will not be done by any rules that we set up or guidelines that we lay out. They will be changed by the presence of God at the table, by the communion, by the fellowship with God's people. These are the things that will change them and not any demands that we make of them in order to be included. Um, So anyways, Lydia was a God-fearer and she wanted so bad to enter into the fellowship of God's people and she simply could not until Paul enters in with the message of Jesus. And suddenly it says that she's in. Now the second thing it says about her is that she was a dealer of purple cloth. Now, um, I think we need some context here. The, the city of Philippi had a major export, and that export was purple cloth. It was cloth that came from, um, that was a specific color of purple, like a scarlet kind of color, that came from these stones that were there. Um, these stones are called indigo rocks, but, but they also would be mixed with a particular root that is there. Uh, you would gather these stones and you would sort of tumble them for a long time until it sort of turned into like a powdery substance, like you could put them in a jar and shake it or you could roll it somehow, um, until it turned into like a fine powdery substance. And you would mix that with uh, water and some other chemicals to get a particular kind of dye that you would turn into these fabrics that you would then export. Now, a particular type of purple, a particular color of purple that this doesn't represent, it's more of a scarlet color. Um, I don't think it's made there anymore. I think it's all exhausted at this point. But at, this, at, at that point, there was this root. Oh, let's see, I wrote it down here. Um, most people, okay, it's called the matter roots that grew there, that was abundant there. And they would take this particular type of matter root that was there and they would mix it with the stone powder and it would make this scarlet colored uh, dye And they would dye the fabrics and they would sell them. Um, And this is the only place you could get that particular color. And this is the particular color that the emperors loved, that the kings loved. Because it was was from the city of Philippi, um, named after one of the emperor's sons. And like it, it, it just, it meant everything to them. So it was really, really expensive. It was worth a lot of money. And this woman knew how to make it. And she made it. And she had a successful business. Um, And she was likely very, very Wealthy, And it's interesting because when you read the story of Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew 27, 
you see this particular fabric mentioned. It says this. It says they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe upon him. Do you remember this? This is when Jesus, after he is beaten, after he's, he's been whipped and he's bloodied and staggering, carrying his cross, and they put this robe on him, and it's a scarlet robe. That scarlet robe came from the city of Philippi, and the chances are high that Lydia had a hand in making it and dyeing it because there weren't many emperors and there weren't many scarlet robes and there probably weren't a lot of people making scarlet dye in this time. So this fabric that they wrapped around Jesus after he had been whipped likely passed through Lydia's hands. This is conjecture, but we like to think the ancient world had a ton of people like it does today. It simply did not. These cities were not big. There was not a lot of people in them. And so chances are very high that it passed through her hands. And so she was a wealthy, successful business woman. Um, on top of all of that, one of the things that would have made her very wealthy is Philippi and Theatira was a major trade center. There's this ancient road, uh, road um, called uh, the Ignatia. And it's a Roman road that traveled everywhere. In order to get anywhere in Rome, you literally had to pass through the city of Philippi. In other words, all roads really did lead right through Philippi. Um, and this woman met tons of people, sold probably lots of, 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 of this fabric and this dye and made a lot of money. But apparently, she wanted more. Apparently, there is something that she felt she was missing. And so she becomes a God-fearer and she's drawing near to the temple. And she wants to know more about God. She wants to know, like, what else is there? And then Paul meets them down by the river. And when Paul gives her her message, it says this. It says, the Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. And so she must have liked what she heard. Um, We can only guess at why this really successful woman responded this way, but we know that she and her household were baptized at once. And so it even says she has a household. That means something. That means that like she has a property that she is like the, the, the sort of the, the ruler of, the lord of this property. She would have had um, sort of slaves and, and people living in her house working for her. Very successful. Um, now, why is it important that Luke includes this woman's story in this passage? We always need to ask these questions. I think that's possibly the most important question to ask when you're reading the Bible is, why did they save this story? Why did they preserve this? What did it mean for the early Christians? Because there are so many things that happened, and you can't save them all, so the authors are being picky and choosy, and Luke has a very limited amount of scroll space. Why is it important for Lydia to be in there? Well, there's a few reasons. Um, it's really encouraging to understand that Jesus not only is speaking to the marginalized, he does have a special place in his heart for oppressed, marginalized, poor people. But Jesus also is drawing in these educated, affluent, wealthy people as well. If you look at the manger, the famous manger scene of Christmas, who's there? There are shepherds, which are the lowest of the low um, in society, bottom of the rung, low honor position. And then there's also the magi, which are the highest, and they're bringing gifts like gold and frankincense. And apparently one of the shepherds brought a drum for some reason. Um, didn't really happen. And that seems like the worst thing to bring to a baby's crib and to play for him. Um, but as, as you look at these scenes, 
Both extremes are brought together for good reason and good purpose to display the kingdom of God and how it works. This woman's home would be featured over and over and over for the rest of the New Testament. Um, there would be a church that would be planted in her house. She would become the leader of this church. Um, uh, Lydia's home, her prominent status, her wealth were a constant source of generosity in the church. And people don't realize this, but as you're reading through the text of the New Testament, you will constantly, once you see it, Lydia will be in the background of so many places. Um, You see in the very next chapter, Paul and Silas, spoiler alert, Paul and Silas are going to be arrested again, and they're going to go to jail, and God's going to break them out. He's going to bust them out, and they're going to go straight to Lydia's house. And I imagine Lydia in her wealthy Roman house. This is a pristine example of a wealthy Roman house. This is from Pompeii, buried and unearthed. If you want to know what Roman structures looked like, the the best example we have is Pompeii, who was trying super hard to look like Rome, and then they got buried. So preserved it. It's perfect. Um, underneath Mount Vesuvius was volcanic ashes. And so I imagine them coming now because they showed up at Lydia's house after they were freed. After being in prison, imagine like the joy that is there, gathering with her, eating their meal, telling the story to the Christians of how God freed them from prison. All of this is incredibly beautiful. And for the rest of scripture, Lydia's home will continue to be a gathering place for Christians. I want to read you some passages that are among the most well-known and beautiful passages of scripture. Um, and I want you to see something about them. Um, let's look at, at the book of Philippians, chapter three, verse, uh, let's go to chapter one, verse six. It says this, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will be, bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. And then look at Philippians 2, five. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. These are passages that we quote all the time if you grew up in a Christian home. These passages that are, that are sort of meant to like, guide us in how we move through the world. Philippians 3, 7, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. Now, we tend to read the Bible oftentimes as if it were written to us. So you read, you know, whatever gains I had, I've come to regard them as lost because of Christ. And we think that it's written to us and encouraging us to be this. And it's okay to read that some of the time, not all the time. Um, There's ways to read everything. It's best to find out who a letter was written to. And this letter was written to Lydia in Lydia's household. The church gathered in Philippi. Sometimes we think of these ancient cities and we think of Paul writing a, church, writing a letter to the, the church in Rome. And we think, oh, it's massive. The, all the, it's like Tampa and there's churches everywhere. And Paul's writing a, church, writing a letter to all these churches. In reality, there were maybe 150 Christians in Rome at that time. And they were gathered in about Six different house churches of about 20 to 30 people. It's a small group of people. That's all there were in the ancient world. That's all there were in these ancient cities. When Paul writes a letter to the church in Philippi, he's probably writing to 10 or 15 people gathered in Lydia's house as she leads them in prayer, in worship, as she teaches them. I imagine her gathering and saying, oh, we got another, we got another letter uh, from Rome. And, and gathering and, and sort of reading all of this uh, together. Um, let me see where we're at for a second here. Um, yeah, I picture her like a, a letter is traveling through and it stops off at her house and she has somebody copy it and, and she stands up and reads it. This is her role. She's one of the few people that are educated and knows how to read. And so she stands up and she reads this letter to, letter to the gathered Christians and she stands up and she reads it like this. 
Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And this is a letter written to her and the people gathered in her, in her house church. And you must ponder, why did Paul write this to her? Why did Paul write this to them? Why is Paul trying to get them to focus on particular things and get their mind off of other things? Well, it's simple. Because in a, in a really wealthy city like Philippi, with huge amounts, vast amounts of trade and wealth moving through and power on display and people of high honor, it's really easy to get caught up in negativity and greed and competition. And Lydia, her whole role was to help the early Christians keep their focus on what mattered. And so Paul can write to her and say to her things like this. He says, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, you shine like stars. This is how he's describing her and her house church. This is how they appeared in the ancient world. He's, he's painting a picture of, I mean, in the ancient world, there, there are none of these lights, and at night, the sky would just be black as can be with bright stars everywhere. And he says, that is you. In a, in a sea of black, a sea of darkness, you are this glowing light that makes everybody stare at and contemplate the meaning of and wonder what it's all about. And he says, this is you. So this is, this is I mean, what we have today is the moment Lydia comes to Christ and then fast forward 15, 20 years down the road, what becomes of her and her church? Read the book of Philippians. This is what you will see. Paul is writing to her and you can gain a lot from that. And it's not just the letter Paul wrote to her. Paul also writes letters about her. Apparently she was doing a really good job. She's a great leader because Paul writes to the, the church in Corinth, which is apparently a huge mess. And Paul writes to them and he says, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian church. That's Lydia's church. And I want to tell you about Lydia's church, Paul says. In the midst of a severe, of a a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. Okay, so there's a few things you get from this particular passage. Paul tells us a couple of things about her church um, in the region of of Macedonia. Um, The first thing that Paul really tells us, and that is really quite surprising, is that Paul says that they were extremely impoverished. And My first thought was, when I first read this years ago, I, I thought, well, Lydia was loaded. How could they be impoverished? Well, as time went on, during the period of planting the church, the church came under severe economic persecution. Um, If you read the book of Revelation, it kind of mentions some of this. The Christians were forced to get what they called the mark of the beast. The beast is the empire. Um, It's not a person, although it does also represent the emperor, the ruler of the empire, because the empire and the emperor are one. So they were for, the Christians in the ancient world were forced to get what's called the mark of the beast. It would be, they would go down to the agora, the marketplace, and they would offer sacrifices of incense to the ancient Roman gods, and then you would receive a mark on your hand, or on your right hand, or on your forehead that said, you are welcome to come and trade in the agora. And if you didn't worship the pagan gods of Rome, you weren't allowed to do business. And so they were getting poor. They had been shut off economically. Nobody would do business with the Christians because it was an affront to their gods. 
They're pagan gods. And if you did, it would anger the gods, they were afraid. And they wouldn't um, do any business with you at all if you were a Christian. If you declared Jesus is Lord. This is why the Christians fell under such heavy persecution all the time. Because they refused to acknowledge you know, either the emperor is being in charge of them or the pagan gods. They just said simply, Jesus is Lord. Our faith, our allegiance is in Christ and Christ alone. Um, so that's the first thing that we see, that they were extremely impoverished. But Paul also says in that passage that they were incredibly generous, which is fascinating. In their poverty, their rampant poverty, they had very little, but they gave constantly. And you will actually see this a lot if you pay attention to it. Those, especially in the Bible and even in real life, those who are poor have a desire oftentimes to help, to give, but they don't have anything. And so what little that they give as a percentage of what they own is, is way more than the rest of us. And so out of their poverty... They gave, and they gave, and they gave. There's even this fundraiser that Paul was doing that he brings up. So Paul had this particular project where, um, sometime I'll go into a lot of detail on it, but uh, not, not today, but basically, Paul's trying to create unity between the Gentiles and the Jews. And the way you would create sort of a relationship in the ancient world is you have to have something to bring these two groups together, and that something is called Grace. We like to think of grace uh, in modern times as like this free thing that you just give and that's it and it's done. But grace in the ancient world, it was a free gift, but it was always given in the hopes of sparking up a relationship. It was given so that they would give back and thus inviting you into something that you had no part in earlier. And so Paul is trying to gather money from Gentile churches and give it to the Jewish churches to create unity among these two fighting groups. The Jewish people did not want the Gentiles in the church necessarily. They had a hard time getting along. And so you read passages like this where Paul writes about this offering. He says, I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So for 20 years, this is always in the background of the New Testament text, for 20 years, Paul is gathering money from Gentile churches to put in a big pile to take to Jerusalem to create unity between the two sides. So he can go to the Jerusalem people, the church, the Jewish church, and say, hey, the Gentiles have a gift for you. And when someone brings you a gift, you have a choice to make. You can reject it or you can receive it. But if you receive it, you're entering into a relationship. And when you read about the grace of God in the Bible... This is what they have in mind. You are being invited into this relationship to now offer back what you have, which is you. And so Paul is doing this for 20 years. Um, And when he comes to the city of Philippi, he doesn't ask them to give an offering for the Jewish church. Why? Because they're exceedingly poor. But what we know is that Paul says that they actually came to Paul and they heard about the gift that Paul was getting together for the Jerusalem church and they begged Paul to take their offering. And they got on their hands and knees and they pleaded, we gathered money, we gathered what we have and Paul's like, you don't have anything. They're like, yes we do, look, this is what we brought. And they give it to Paul. And Paul takes it with them. And that's why he's writing about all the amazing things that this little church was doing led by Lydia. Now, why were they so generous? 
because their leader was, because Lydia was. She's wealthy, she has a house, she has a household, and she brings in these Christians into her household, and she takes care of them, and she feeds them, and she likely clothes them. I imagine, I imagine them sitting in a big circle all wearing scarlet robes, like freaking royalty, right? Like all sitting in a circle, wearing these incredible things that she makes. And she's feeding them and she's teaching them. This is her role. And in the background of the entire book of Philippians, it is her. In the background of what Paul's bragging about, about the churches of Macedon, it is her. She is a special woman who does incredible things. And they were such important things that even 2,000 years later, we are gathered right here in the city of Tampa on the opposite end of the world talking about them. That's how important she was. Anytime you hear anyone quoting the book of Philippians, it's because of Lydia. She was a good leader. She was generous. And the generosity is contagious. Generosity that doesn't just help people that you are giving to. It loosens the hands of all around you. When people see you being generous, it causes them to be generous as well. She's a good leader. You become like your leaders. This is what I've been talking about for several years now. You become like your leaders. And so we have to find people like this. And we have to sit at their feet and learn from them about what it means to move through the world in a Christ-like way. It's not about the gift of what we call leadership. Most seminaries now spend so much time and space teaching leadership classes. But they don't teach Christ-likeness. They don't teach forgiveness and grace and mercy. They teach you how to lead people, but what are we leading them to? We need to spend time with people like this. We need to read about her. Because really, there's two ways you can live your life. There's two ways. Your life can be taken from you, or it can be poured out. It's a choice. Most people's lives are being taken from them. Most people are amassing Wealth, memories, power, career, they're, they're, they spend their life gathering and gathering and building and making something of themselves. This is how we talk about it. I'm going to make something of myself. Why don't you go make something of yourself? So we spend our lives gathering. But what that means is the last part of your life will be spent with all those things being taken from you. Because life is about learning to let go. We let go of our youth. We have children, and then we let go of our like, alone time with our spouse, right? And then uh, we, our children grow up, and we learn to let go of them as they fly the coop. And then we learn as we get older to let go of our looks and our abilities and our health and eventually our lives. Our lives, most of us, will just be taken from us piece by piece by piece. But there's this other way to live that Paul constantly talks about. He says it in phrases like this, when he says, when he writes to her and he says, if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul, Paul's life was not taken from him. He constantly refers to it as being poured out. Paul says, you know that communion thing that you do, the broken body and the poured out wine? body of Christ broken, the blood of Christ poured out. Um, that's not something I take. That's something I am. I become. I am the sacrifice, and my life will be poured out. And this is how I will live. 
And so the things that I have, they come into my, my hands and my possession and I use them not for myself. I'm not amassing. I'm building for God's kingdom and my life will be poured out. It's a choice. I'm holding loosely and I'm letting it go because that's what life really at the bottom of it. We have to understand that like part of life is learning to let go and to let God do what God is going to do. That it's okay, that God is in control. And so this rich, wealthy woman, the moment she met Jesus, everything that she owned became as if it wasn't even hers. And it began flowing into the church, and it becomes sort of the background for the entire ministry of the church in that entire area. She was incredibly generous. She, like Paul, didn't just receive communion. She became it. She became part of the common union of God's people in the world. And so I guess my my charge for you today is to not let your life be taken from you, especially if you've come into some kind of wealth in this world. Don't let that be taken from you. Pour it out. Use it for the things of God. Whatever little, whatever greatness you have. Um... Learn from Lydia. Pour yourself out in a Christ-like act of defiant selflessness. I can't imagine anything more defiant in our culture than not amassing wealth for yourself, than pouring it out, than saying, no, this, is not, this was never mine. This was always God's. Let your life and your death tell the story of Christ through your body, the body of Christ broken for the world, the blood of Christ poured out for the world. And as you do this, God's people are encouraged. God's people are made more and more generous And that's why when you read the book of Acts, chapter 2 and chapter 4, you see the church there, joyous, fulfilled, all of their needs taken care of amongst each other. And so I want to remind you, um, I think we may on our live stream still have a ticker over here somewhere uh, that says, if you need help, email us. If you can help, here's the number to text uh, for uh, forgiving, for offering. Um, if you are in need, I know during this time, a lot of people have reached out with rent and with mortgages to pay, and we've been there, and we've asked you guys to step up, and you've done it, and it's been incredibly beautiful, and like Joseph mentioned this morning, we're really proud of everyone. Like, our giving hasn't skipped a beat, and it's even some, at some points gone up right when we needed it to so that we could provide for the people that needed it. And so I hope that our church is a fraction sort of of the shadow of, of Lydia's church and that we would grow in those areas, that we would be like she was because she was like Christ was. And so with that, uh, I'm going to call this service to a close and I'm going to pray. And uh, if you guys would stand with me, let's pray and then we're going to move into our collect prayer uh, this morning. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this place and these people. Continue to guide us, teach us to live in a way that is open-handed, that isn't crunching and, and clenching and grasping on to everything the way the world is, that we would not conform to that pattern that the world has, that we would see each other, that we would see each other's needs, that we would allow ourselves to be broken and poured out for them, however that looks. Um, whatever our needs are, fill them up and do it through your brothers and sisters around us. May we take part and the generosity that you want to give to the world. May we represent that when people look at us. May they see Christ-like generosity, not just in money, but in time, 
um, and in, in, uh, in, in presence and in thoughts and conversation. May we be generous in all of it. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. So if you guys would, we're going to do our collect prayer and we'll be on our way. Let's do it. Nice and loud. Ready? God of hope, who heals the broken, be present with us. Where there is mourning, bring comfort. Where there is division, bring unity. Where there is depravity, bring wholeness. Where there is deception, bring truth. May we be a people bound together in love and faith, bringing your kingdom to earth in the name of Jesus. Thank you all. Um, love you all. Miss you, everyone who's not here, who I haven't seen in a long time. Grace and peace to every one of you. Um, have, an, have, have the best week of your life.